Welcome back to Intent and Instinct with Nick and me, Brett. Also joining us today is a returning guest, a good friend and a great author, Lindsay Schaffer. It's good to have you back in. Thanks. It's great to be back. So we've had you on before. Mm-hmm. Lots changed since then. Uh, bring us up to speed with what you've been working on. Uh, let's see. Um, bringing you up to speed. Gosh, I'm trying to remember... Has it really been that long ago since I was I was here on the show? How long has it been? Like a year at least? Roughly, I would about, say. About a year or yeah. so? Okay. Um, so uh, let's see. I have another book coming out. Um, well, of course, i I got to get that out of the way right right off. Um, I'm sure we'll be talking about it more. Absolutely. Um, but that's uh, that's the third Kelton Moore novel, um, Dangerous Territory. That'll be coming out this June. And um, really... Uh, new news is that this last weekend um, I received the uh, I was awarded first in category in the Ozma Fantasy Awards which is part of the Chanticleer International Book Awards um, and that was for the second Kelton Moore novel uh, Into the North so uh, that was that was pretty cool that I'm I'm still riding that high like I'm telling every bank tellers my doctor you know telemarketers anybody that will <laughs> listen and anybody else that is forced to listen I'm telling them about that so you you knew you were gonna hear about that at some point today absolutely well congratulations that that's huge thank you and is that award the Chanticleer named after Chanticleer from the book of Duncow the the rooster in, yes. in the book of Duncow. Yeah, my my understanding is that yeah, Chanticleer comes from uh, the name of the rooster, and uh, Ozma, the um, fantasy contest, uh, the the one that I, I got first in category for, um, is apparently named for the character of the uh, uh, Wizard of Oz books. So that that's where that name comes from. So I'm pretty sure all of the different categories have names that are based on you know some literary source, which would make sense. That doesn't make sense. Yeah. So like for every writer the big milestone is, is getting that first book published, right? There's nothing quite like that, but uh, close behind, I would imagine. I've never won an award for a novel. I would imagine that has to sit close behind. Um, you know what? Honestly, I, I would almost say that this, this rate's above uh, getting your first book published, um, at, at least for me. And, and the reason why I say that is because, you know, these days, uh, being able to self-publish um, is easier than ever. And a lot of people are doing it. And I'm not trying to discredit it or, or say that it's not a great way to go. I'm self-published. Um, but because of that, there's, there's still this sense of, well, I, I know that I accomplished this thing, um, but uh, you know, do other people value what I've put out? Right? And, and it used to be when, you were, when traditional publishing was the only option, you knew when that first book was put out, you said, okay, I know that I value this, and I know that my agent valued this, and the publisher, and the bookstores, and they all valued it too. But when you're self-published, it's like, okay, well, my book's out there, but I still don't know if it's of any value. So now, here I am, gosh, I, I've, I guess I've been at this for at least 10 years now, and to finally receive my first major award, um, it's, it's huge. It's an amazing uh, validation of the work that I've done up until now. And the funny thing was, I actually had people coming up to me at the, the, the award dinner afterward, you know, because I'm walking around with my blue ribbon and everything, and I had people come up to me and saying, uh, you know, it's so great that this is happening to you so early in your career. That's so wonderful. And I'm just sitting there just kind of smiling at it. I was like, oh, yeah, you know, so early. You know, five <laughs> books in, ten years in. Yeah. <laughs> A blink of an eye. 
but, uh, you know, hey, I'll take it now. Better to take it now than take it in, you know, 40 years, 50 years, or never, right? So hey, Absolutely, or, or posthumously. And or posthumously, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, a lot of writers <laughs> don't get yeah. any credit until well after their passing. Yeah, just a lot of artists in general, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And do you think that that award in itself perpetuates your longevity? I, certainly you're not writing just for the accolades, but does it give you a bit more fire? Um, yeah, it, it definitely gives a, a shot in the arm. Um, you know, it, it does... It, it does a couple things. One is that it, it validates um, what I'm doing to maybe some of the naysayers. Because even though I've been at this for a while, and even though I, I have, you know, I, I do have a lot of credentials to my name, not having a major award was always one of those things that kind of loomed over everything, right? And every time I wanted to try to accomplish something with, with my writing, that was a noticeable gap uh, in, in my, my CV. Um, so that's, that's definitely one thing. But the other thing, and, and like I said, it's just the, the fact that it's, it's this huge validation on my side. Um, I remember as a kid, I would do plays, and I wrote plays in high school. And most people that came to the plays were the, the parents of the other kids that were in the show. Um, and everyone kept saying, oh, this is so good, this is so good. And I kept thinking, is this good? Or are you just praising me because you're my parent or because you you're the parent of one of the people that's in my show and even you know even over the last few years whenever someone would write, write an, uh, an amazon review or something i'd sit there and say okay is this someone that i know or is this a stranger right and and um the, the it, it would always feel a little bit feel a little bit uh, uh of more more worth when it was somebody else somebody that I didn't know. So now to suddenly have this award, and, and it being an international award too, which is something I didn't realize until I was there. Um, I thought it was a regional award, um, but it wasn't until I saw another guy get up to receive his award and said that he made the trip up from Australia to receive his award. Um, I didn't realize it was that, <laughs> that, that this was that global of a contest. So when I found that out, that, that was the, I was over the moon even more. And he came up before the my category was announced before the Ozma category was announced so I'm sitting here like I'm sweating bullets at that point I'm like oh crap <laughs> I, th I thought I was in pretty good contention <laughs> and then all of a sudden I find out oh the scope of this just expanded out mm -hmm. um, but then you know they they called my name and uh, you know the, the rest is week-long history <laughs> what what was the category you said first in category um so i'm not i'm, I'm not sure what all the different categories are within within the osma mm -hmm. um there there was there were several people who, who won first in category with within the osma fantasy mm -hmm. um i'm suspecting it's the, the steampunk because steampunk in in this contest is actually a subcategory of the osma oh, okay. so that's 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 what I, I suspect, but they haven't gotten back to us with all the you know the little information and stuff. And I, I think that the person who uh, organizes the contest that they had a, a, a family tragedy of some kind, so they're a little slow on getting stuff back to us. But I do know for a fact that you know everything's set in stone. It's just the details are still coming back. But excellent. Well, again, congratulations. Now, and this was for your second book in the Kelton War series, Into the North. Correct. That's correct. Yeah. Awesome. And that was the first one that I got to read as a beta reader, even before having read The Beast Hunter. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And uh, fantastic book. Thanks. 
So what I would like to do is uh, know a bit about how you came to be a writer. Um, so I want to kind of dig back to let's go to childhood. I said we we already have you on our couch, so okay. we might as well turn this into a therapy okay. session. Ah, I suppose. Let me let me relax. But uh, do you remember your first um, your first time sitting down and deciding I really want to write a story? And do you remember why you? felt that way was there an incident did you come across something well if you if you ask my my mom it was uh, when I was three years old um, that I, I wrote a story about a, a horse um, but what's funny is that uh, I think it was at the Into the North book launch maybe it was a different book but I think it was Into the North uh, as I was getting ready for it I found an old um, quote-unquote book it was it was like four or five pages um, that had little crayon drawings on it and and little uh you know my little writing on it and sure enough it was a story about a horse uh i don't think i was three when i did it i think it was probably in maybe first grade um but it was all about a, a horse that saves a cowboy at a rodeo from a, a wild bull uh, because at the time i was really into she westerns just, and you stuff you were going right for hemingway's <laughs> bread and butter from the start yeah first grade that's right <laughs> <laughs> um and, you know, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I can't really tell you why it was that um, I, I loved stories so much, but I, I've always loved stories. Um, when, I would play, when I would play outside, my favorite way to play outside was I would go outside and I would tell stories to myself. I'd make up stories, and that was how I played my make-believe. Um, and I would have these long, epic fantasies and these grand adventures that I would, I would uh, pace back and forth outside, like, you know, in the rain or something, I'd be pacing back and forth and telling me a, myself a story out loud. That was how I, that was how I played. Um, so when I write, the stories that I write, um, to a large degree, they're the same kind of stories that I would tell myself as a kid growing up, pacing back and forth outside. Um, if I could, I would type while pacing. Um, that's just how my mind works. That's how the stories come to me. So sometimes when people say, well, what, what are the messages you're trying to get across? Or what are the deeper themes to some degree, it's like, well, I, I don't know if there really is. It, it's, it's a very, it's, it's kind of a personal thing. My, my stories kind of come from what I want to experience, what I want to imagine, the adventures I want to go on. The fact that I get to go on these adventures in my mind and then share it with somebody else and they experience an adventure too, that's magical. That blows my mind that that's even a possibility. Yeah. So fast forward a little bit, you know, you're, you're a child and you're telling yourself these stories and that's, that's your, your playtime or your, your creative time. Uh, but we enter into middle school or yeah. maybe even high school. Um, and did your affinity with story affect your academic performance in school? Were you, were you drawn to all of those essays or... Were you a bit anti-authoritarian and decided to step away from what they wanted you to write or read? Oh, no. I, I definitely uh, was uh, terrible at following directions. Yeah, um, absolutely. I was... If, if, they, if they said, you know, tell us about your summer vacation, um, I'd come up with a false summer vacation about how I went to another world, you know, or, or something. Like, I, I, I did not follow the, the guidelines. Um, but usually I got away with it because, you know, it at least was something different and the teacher appreciated reading something different. Um, so I, I would, you know, uh, 
I would I would get away with it in that regard. So you put in effort, but yeah. you put in effort where you felt where you found it valuable. Exactly. So that's something that I've noticed through um, many successful people that in those earlier years, those years where they don't necessarily have the clout to be the the author or the authoritarian, that um, they they still do try to 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 show their capability while also showing that their sense of direction, um, they, they feel confident in their sense of direction. Meaning like, well, I'm yeah. going to answer your question about what I did this summer, but I'm gonna answer it my way because I feel like my way is more constructive. Right. So uh, it's a little bit of a anti-authority well, thing I, I there. Guess, but. <laughs> I guess a little bit, yeah. You know, and, and honestly, I, I actually, most of the writing that I did in high school was actually for the stage. I did um, like six plays. Um, most of which were that uh, I directed and then we produced um, you know through the acting company there at my school or another one that we came up with uh, that we created to do for charity um, and all of that uh, j- mainly came about because um, I didn't I didn't want to do the plays that the director that the drama teacher was was doing I didn't want to do those plays and I wasn't getting good parts when I would try out for plays um, so I said well I'm gonna write my own play and when, when the teacher found out, well, Lindsay wrote a full-length play, well, I guess we, we're, we have to let him put it on because, you know, what kind of drama teacher would I be if, if my student just on their own decided to do this? Um, and, uh, and I didn't, you know, try to bring that out. So, yeah, I, there wasn't anybody really knocking down my door saying, Lindsay, we really want you to write these stories. I, I, was, I was creating them and uh, just kind of came up and said, hey, I've got this and I want to do it. So what was the play? Uh, well, the first one I ever did was in seventh grade, and that was a full-length Shakespearean-style play about a, uh, it was a love triangle between a gypsy, a bard, and a prince, um, which had full-on, like, Hamlet style, it had a ghost, it had all kind. it had fencing, it had all, all kinds of, you know, the whole nine yards, and here we are, 12-year-olds, um, up there trying to, trying to hold up a production for two and a half hours, um, it was it was pretty intense, but uh, I've still got friends from from those days, and um, we still remember putting on those productions. But that was the first play I ever did. It was actually in seventh grade. It was before high school. Okay. Do you feel like writing for plays in sort of those formative educational years affected how you approach dialogue? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I not not just dialogue, but I think it's why I have certain strengths and certain weaknesses in my writing. Um, my setting description has always been really weak, especially in my early drafts. I have to go back and really punch the, that up in the revision process. And even still, I sometimes feel like it's, it's the weakest part of my writing, is my setting description. Because in a script, there is no setting description. Or what there is, you rely on the, uh, the, the set decorator to, to really kind of flesh that out. Um, but yeah, dialogue, um, I feel, I feel like my dialogue is strong because, um, of my history in writing for the stage. Um, and also, you know, to a certain degree, writing action, because even if, even though the, the script is fairly dry, um, it's very much, uh, a visual medium, um, especially when I moved on and, and went to film school and was working on screenplays, uh, instead of stage plays, uh, it got much more physical. And uh, that's why I feel like my, my action is, is also one of my strengths as well. What did you notice about the differences between writing screenplays versus scripts? 
What um, did you have to start paying attention to that you didn't pay attention to before? So, uh, a screenplay, the format of a screenplay is far less forgiving. Um, screenplays are formatted very, very precisely because um, uh, Hollywood has basically figured out that um, if, it, if the screenplay is formatted a, a particular way, that you can pretty much guarantee that one page of a script equals to one minute of movie time. And that's not exactly, but the way that it it's, tends to be formatted out, it, it works out that way almost all the time. Um, so you have very, very strict guidelines that you are playing under. Um, and what I actually found what I was disappointed at in writing screenplays is I didn't realize that it was restrictive to the point where um, almost, almost all the creativity was squeezed out of it. Um, that really you're providing a template. You're providing uh, the bare bones for the director to play in. The director is the one who gets the vision. The director is the one who gets to have final say in what your story is. The director can do a page one rewrite, um, which is basically just completely change your script, can change everything about it. He can take your romance about you know two people finding love in Boston and turn it into a psychedelic horror that happens in the outback. Mm -hmm. um, and the only thing you can choose to do is uh, get a credit of uh, Alan Smithy instead of your actual name. Um, yeah, there, there is, once you sell a screenplay, it's like selling a pair of shoes. They own it now, they can do whatever they want to it. Um, so finding that out about screenplays is the biggest, one of the biggest reasons why I then transitioned on to writing novels. Um, that and the fact that I love fantasy um, as my primary genre and trying to do a fantasy movie is prohibitively expensive um, if you're trying to do, you know, just be a self-starter like I've always been. And trying to do a fantasy stage play is almost as prohibitive um, and certainly less common. So, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So before I pass the torch to Brett with a few questions I know he has, there's one lingering one that I have. So on this podcast, we obviously... Uh, try to kind of get at the heart of how one builds a fulfilling life and through certain physical or mental passions. Uh, part of that is overcoming stages in our lives where, where we might decide to switch paths. Was there ever a moment or moments where you decided or thought about leaving writing behind and, and picking up other areas of your life? And if so, Tell us a little bit about that. I'd say at least three to four times a year, hmm. <laughs> right? Um, and I think that's probably true of, of most artists. Um, that uh, you know, there's a part of part of you that says, "Well, I'm, I, it's not that I'm going to quit writing, but am I going to quit this being my profession of choice?" Right? Like I, I, I could never just quit being a writer. Um, but there have been, there have been tons of times, you know, like I said, three or four times a year when, you know, you, you, you look at all the things that are stacked against you and you say, why, and you know, and, um, why, why, why am I, why am I still trying? Um, and I guess the, the way that, that I, I kind of, um, push through that or, or work through that, um, it, come, it comes back to uh, uh, an experience, I'll just share this very briefly, a, a friend of mine um, uh, who's, he's, he's a twin, um, and his brother 
is, was always incredibly handsome, incredibly skilled, incredibly smart. He was valedictorian of his class. He, he was always successful and, and just, you know, every, every worldly, you know, success he could possibly have, he got. My friend, on the other hand, uh, was uh, born with a, a disability. He was uh, developmentally delayed. Um, he had uh, a walking uh, pro he had a problem walking. He had a, a, a speech impediment. Um, he had uh, some slight facial disfiguration, um, and uh, you know it, it also affected his cognition to a certain degree. He was very smart um, uh, and you know very uh, very on top of things, but it was also things were difficult for him. Normal things were were harder for him than they would be for anyone else. Um, and of course, he's got this twin brother to compare himself to every day of his life. Um, but my friend was happy. He was always happy, always upbeat, always so positive. And so finally one day I asked him, why? Why are you this way? Why are you so happy? You know, what, what makes you so positive? And he said, Lindsay, um, everything has its cost. Everything is hard to do. It's hard to be lazy. It's hard to fail. It's hard to do nothing. It's hard to succeed. Everything is hard, one way or another. However you look at it, everything has a price to pay. So if everything is going to be hard anyway, why not do the thing that you love? Because you might as well love it, and you might as well work towards that dream. And that's something that I've always tried to, to remember. That's fantastic. I really like that uh, approach too. That being lazy is hard. Like, yes, being uh, disciplined is, is difficult. It's hard. It's hard to wake up early and, and yeah. actually go to the gym, or it's hard to to hit your simple one page per day quota right. of writing. But being lazy is also hard. It because is because there is a cost to that. Exactly. There's, maybe it's stress due to procrastination. Maybe it's loss of opportunity due to disorganization. But it is difficult and arguably more difficult to be lazy than it is to be um, to be disciplined. So I, re I really like kind of that super simple approach. Yeah, um, I did too. Especially coming from somebody who, like you mentioned, had a reminder, yeah, a, a genetic reminder in their sibling of how one's life can be harder than a nearly identical person's life. Right. Um, and, and what you do... To, to overcome that yeah yeah absolutely yeah i wonder where we would all be if we all had twins and which twin would we be so Lindsay, let me ask you uh this is your third novel in the kelton moore series yes. dangerous territory yeah how has kelton changed and has your writing process changed over the course of three novels okay um, you know, it's, it's funny to think of how, how Kelton has changed because um, he, he has, but I think that I know Kelton so intimately at this point that it's kind of like you're, you, you, you'd ask, you know, you and I had been friends, say if you and I had been friends for, for three years, which I think is actually pretty close um, to how long you and I have known each other, Brett, um, and you asked me, okay, Lindsay, has Brett changed in the last three years that you've known him? Like, well, Probably, probably uh, there are probably some things. If you made me sit and put my feet to the fire and think about it, yeah, probably. Um, but Kelton to me is such a real person 
um, and I and not in a weird way, but you know, to to me, he's he's very organic and very realistic, and so I don't see him in terms of character arc, and I don't see him in terms of oh, these are the you know he started here, now he is here, and now and then he jumps to this, and then he jumps to this. Um, you know, I, I, I could definitely say that uh, he has grown as a person. He's become more social. He's learned to depend a little more on other people. And I think those are some of the superficial things. But um, who he is on the inside and um, what his values are, I don't think those have really changed. Um, I, I think that his outside circumstances has, uh, or have, rather. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I think that maybe I'm, I'm a little too close to be able to easily say oh yeah he's he used to be at point a now he's at point b um he's too real for me to be able to do that so that's excellent well and that that speaks to uh, the the quality of characters that you develop so let me ask you where do you see kelton going next <laughs> um that's a great question so i've already got book four um i already have the the general plot in mind for it and i have a basic idea of where book five is going to go as well um beyond that i don't know there, there'll probably be more after that this isn't i never really conceived of this as being a series that had a definite end um i've i've wanted it to just kind of be an ongoing series as long as it'll go um i i will say this i noticed that the Keltmore series thus far has kind of established a pattern of kind of alternating between heavier what i would consider a heavier storyline and a lighter storyline so Beast Hunter, I would consider, be a little bit heavier. You know, we were dealing with revolution, and we were dealing with starvation, and, and you know, some, some pretty heavy subjects. And then the second one, there was a gold rush. Yes, there, there were some, you know, there, there was still, you know, some heavy subjects within there, but it was a little bit more of a kind of a rousing, you know, Yukon kind of Jack London-style adventure. Dangerous Territory... There are influences from uh, pre-Nazi Germany. There are influences from, um, you know, uh, the the post-Czarist Russia. Um, you know, there there are definitely some more serious uh, subjects that are being covered here. So those are also large-scale subjects. Exactly, exactly. So my my thought is for book four is that we're probably going to swing a little bit more again towards the lighter side, um, and. Uh, and then by book five, we'll swing back over towards a more heavier subject. The other thing that um, might be interested to know is that uh, I am planning on, for book four, focusing a little more on the conflicts of uh, one of Ker one of Kelton's companions. Um, we focused a lot on Kelton's problems and those being the central part of the stories. And I think for book four, even though it will still be told through Kelton's perspective and it will still be told through his eyes, um, I think that the the source of the primary conflict this time will actually not be with Kelton. It will be with, from another character. Um, so a, a character that we know and a character that, uh, you know, uh, a lot of the fans have come back and said, oh, I, I really like this character. I want to hear what happens with them. We're really going to explore them in book four. Um, again, through Kelton's eyes, but, uh, you know, it, it'll be a shift. It'll be a little different. Very cool. Why why do you think you've you've done that back and forth between heavier... Is, was that organic? Was that planned? Or? That was not planned at all. <laughs> that was not planned at all. It just kind of is falling into that. And, you know, I probably shouldn't admit that, that I didn't plan it that way. I should probably say, oh, yeah, you know, I totally planned it that way. That's, that's exactly, you know, how it's been planned that way since I was in seventh grade. But, no, it's it just kind of happy accident. 
Well, I'll stop you right there and say that's actually a good sign. Uh, in my <laughs> experience, when we've crafted good characters, mm -hmm. unplanned things occur, and those unplanned things are generally more natural and emotionally impactful than planned arcs. Yeah. Uh, if you have to plan what happens to the character, that means it wouldn't have happened naturally. Yeah. And if it doesn't happen naturally, then that means your character is not full. Yeah. And that's my opinion. But it, So it sounds like what you did was create a character or a cast of characters that are able to drive their own lives. Yeah. Um, or at least find themselves in places they don't want to be. And I, I think that's a good sign. Yeah, I agree. Thanks. Absolutely. Tell us a little bit about the monsters. We have a, <laughs> a huge variety of uh, stork-legged beasts. You have stag beasts. You have armored leeches. Uh, you have uh, smoke beasts. Mm -hmm. uh, all all sorts of different things. Uh, certainly a, a very unique monster in Into the North. Um, you have Sleevax. How did you come up with the idea for these different creatures? Well, um, I mean, each, each of the creatures comes from something, uh, has their own source, right? I mean, you mentioned the Armored Leech. The Armored Leech came from a nightmare. Um, I, I, had a, I had a nightmare about this gigantic thing that was kind of undulating towards me, kind of like a, a big elephant seal that was coming towards me, but it had no head and it had no appendages. And as it reared up and almost latched itself onto me, I saw that it had kind of the mouth like a lamprey uh, on the underside. And as it collapsed on top of me, I woke up. And uh, yeah, I was like, okay, that's going to be a monster in a story for sure. Um, some other ideas have uh, been in, inspired just, um, like I said, from, from playing make-believe when I was a kid. I was always making up creatures. Um, some of them are uh, amalgamations of things I've seen from video games and then other stories that I've, I've read, other fantasy stories. Um, but I also try to leave as much detail out when I describe my creatures as possible. And this has been probably one of the more divisive things about the Keltmore series is that some people will say, gosh, I wish you just gave us more details on the creatures. I wish you would tell us more um, you know, and, and, and really show us, shine a light on these things uh, so that we know exactly what they look like. But then I've, other, I've had other uh, readers who say, I love the fact that you leave those parts out so that I can fill in the blanks myself. And um, my comparison is, uh, you know, you think about the original Star Wars trilogy, think about the second one, um, Empire Strikes Back, the, uh, the ice creature uh, at the beginning. Um, in the original one, you see just flashes of it and just hear things and you see like an arm and, you know, you see very little. Uh, and apparently George Lucas was always disappointed with that. He wanted to, us to be able to see the creature. So when he did his special edition, sure enough, CGI, there's the creature. And I think it lost so much um, to just shine the light on it. Um, so I, I think that's an example of sometimes fans think they want something, um, but when they get it, they realize... I, I thought I wanted that, but it turns out I didn't. Um, in some ways, it's kind of like, uh, you know, we're at Thanksgiving dinner. Who wants thirds? I, I want thirds. I think I want thirds. But honestly, if I eat more, I probably will just put myself in discomfort and I'll be uncomfortable and unhappy. And I wish I hadn't done that. I thought I wanted this, but it actually wasn't the best thing. So I think in that case, that's where the author has to kind of be the grown-up a little bit and say, you know what, I know you're, you're saying you think you want this, but I promise you what you're, what you're getting is better. Yeah, there's a trade-off. Uh, 
they, they might want that information, but at the same token, what's that going to do to the pacing of the story, and et cetera, right. et cetera. Who knows, maybe down the line there's a, a bestiary that will be written That's for true. those fans. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I don't know if I'd be the one to write it, though. I'm, I, even then, I may want somebody else to do that, because, you know, it's... I don't know if, if I'd really want to be the one to to spoil it. Yeah, you know I mean, absolutely. So, in this book, uh, we have some some new companions, some new friends that Kelton meets, mm-hmm. and all very capable people in, in their own way, but they're not the supernatural specialists that we've seen in previous installments. What drove you to write more? regular characters or more regular supporting characters right um yeah because you know up until now uh kelton's two main companions have been borbatai who is you know a non-human who has you know these sky talking powers which we know among other things it's it's partial control of the weather right and then we've got jaylock who while he is human um you know he can use he can call on his ancestors and use all kinds of powers you know and use skills that he actually doesn't have they're the skills of his ancestors um and I, I do want to clarify. I'm not saying that those two characters are not going to keep, not going to stay in in the series. That was a specific choice for this book to not have them there. Um, and a big part of the reason why was because um, uh, Kelton's struggle in this book is a little different from previous books. In the first one, his social struggle was uh, to learn how to work with others, learn how to work with his peers. In the second one, his struggle among other things, was uh, learn how to be a leader of, of his peers. This one, it's learning how to be a guardian. Because up until now, yes, he has been, you know, he, he's been a protector of sorts of people, but it's always been, step out of the way, I will, take, I will take the brunt of this, I will go off my own, you people stay where it's safe. Well, that's not possible in this situation because he is having to escort them, right? And he's, he's having to... Uh, I don't want to say play nursemaid because it's not like they're they're that incompetent, um, but uh, he certainly feels responsible for everybody's safety. And I wanted him to have people that, while they're capable in their own way, they are not his peers. So he has to uh, evaluate. He he can't just say, okay, well, I know that I can just rely on this other person to carry the ball for me if something happens. There, he may have to say, okay. I know you can handle this aspect, and you can handle this aspect, and you can handle this aspect, but I can't rely on any one of you for everything. I have to be the one to take charge and kind of take that responsibility, or at least that's how he feels. And there may even that, that may even be a misconception of his, and maybe he doesn't need to do that, and maybe he's taking on more responsibility than he should. Um, so that's... That's something I'd like to leave up for the, the reader to decide for themselves. Is Do they think that, that Kelton is justified in feeling like he has to take on that much responsibility or not? I'm, I'm, I'm not really going to say. I, I think it'd be better for the reader to kind of make that decision based on the events. But that's why I specifically wanted to have characters that were not supernatural um, so that there was more potential responsibility on Kelton's shoulders. And does that responsibility create some conflict? Um... Yeah, I mean, you know, sure, it, it does. Um, it's There's going to be conflict in, in any of the, you know, any social interactions. Um, so it, it, it does, um, but I think it's more internal conflict. Mm. You know, it's it's not it's not, not like it's a conflict between him and other people, but it's more internal conflict, him forcing himself to be responsible for things that maybe he doesn't need to be. 
and causing himself more grief than he needs. Absolutely. Now we see in this book he is revisiting a similar territory from book one. Yeah. And we see him uh, dealing with some past prejudices in a variety mm -hmm. of ways. Was that something that you had wanted to see happen from the original book? Or was that something new that just developed? Yeah, so um, I in the in the first book there there were there were kind of races of people that had kind of similar personalities, you know. So so little bi tend to act the same way, and heteracs tend to act the same way. And you could sometimes get away with that because it's a fantasy, um, right? But and uh, like you think of um, someone like David Eddings, who was a fantasy author that I really enjoyed. He would have entire nations where everybody in that nation had the same personality. And in a lot of ways, um, that was nice because it was kind of like a sitcom. You knew which role everyone played, so you could just relax and see everyone play their roles. Um, and, and there wasn't really any complexity to that. It was, it was comfortable, and it was easy. Um, but I realized, especially after um, Into the North, um, there, there were some issues with uh, indigenous people versus the prospectors who were coming in. And there's a point in Into the North where Kelton is trying to go to one of the indigenous people that have been displaced, and they've been, you know, much maligned, and they've de they're definitely the victims uh, in this situation. And he's trying to go to one of these indigenous people and ask for their help to protect the interlopers. And uh, the the you know character that Kelton is confronting basically uh, says, "Why would I want to help them? Why in the world would I do that?" And Kelton's response, um, you know, and, and I'm I'm not saying this verbatim, but essentially his response is one of one of the pieces of writing that I've I've actually been uh, very proud of, and I try I try not to make too many social statements, but this is one that I did I I was uh, happy with, which is um, it's it's not my responsibility how somebody chooses to live the life that I have saved. You know. I give someone I it's it's my it's my place to uh, give them the freedom, and then how they choose to use that freedom that's up to them, and that's not my responsibility, but I want to give them that chance to make that choice. Um, and after I wrote that, I realized I couldn't get away with continuing a series with having entire races of people all acting the same way to each other. So that's why I started to add a little bit more nuance and, you know, showing people um, that, yes, you might have a group that they tend to act a particular way if they're from a certain region, if they're raised up in a certain society. I think that that's, you know, still very plausible, you know, and we see that in, in real life. Um, but it's not, the ne it's not necessary. People can grow up in a certain set of circumstances or grow up in, in a certain um, society and turn away from it. For good or for bad, um, and so that's why that's why I made that change in book three because I realized that if I'm going to continue this series, and if I like that so much, what I did in book two, um, I I can't continue with uh, things that are kind of oversimplified in the first one. And again, it was kind of a happy accident. Again, like you were talking about, Nick, it's kind of a happy accident that it started out that way uh, in the first book, and then it's kind of grown and adapted. I don't feel like I'm having to retcon at all. Like, I don't feel like I'm, I'm having to, to backtrack on anything. I'm just opening the world up a little bit more. Yeah, absolutely delving deeper. Yeah. Which, um, 
one could argue works in the favor of the readers too because they, they get to learn in the earlier uh, sections what to expect, what right. to be comfortable with because um, you're, you're entering into a new world as this reader and you want to know the rules of the world. Mm -hmm. um, subtly, you want to be told these rules and then after you're told these rules, you want to see how those rules are broken or how those rules are a little bit more nuanced than before because right. now you're comfortable and safe in the world so you're you're ready for that nuance. So I right. think that's the perfect time for your series to really be uh, letting that flourish. Yeah. Yeah. Kind, of, kind of expanding out. Mm -hmm. And also it's a good time to wrap up a few of the uh, uh, plot lines that have been kind of continuing through books one and two. This, you know, We've got things that are kind of coming to a close here uh, because, again, there are things that I didn't want to have you know, constantly stretching out uh, for four or five books into the series. So there's definitely some closure to things, and, and I hope that you know this is just one example what we're talking about is just one example of kind of opening up this story a little bit more so that people can feel like where where will this go next this is this is different enough that i feel like we could go anywhere with this rather than well i've read three of them and now that i've read three of them i've basically read all of them mm -hmm. you know what i mean absolutely one last question for yeah. you uh cuff the hound <laughs> is as rich and dynamic as, as any of uh, the, the human characters, uh, what role do animals play in the beast hunting world? And could we ever see a domesticated beast? Well, tam tamarind hounds, they, they are domesticated beasts. I mean, that, that was always kind of my intention. Um, the fact that, you know, that's, it's four feet, four foot tall at the shoulder. Um, you know, it, it's, it's got uh, definitely some kind of uh, otherworldly um, bits to them and stuff. I always intended that uh, tamarind hounds had meant were beasts. And if you think about it, sleevex are also, they're not necessarily domesticated, but they, they have been kind of uh, used now for, um, for the, the purposes of man and, and heterax. So yeah, I, I definitely could see people, um, you know, continue. And that's, that's part of the great thing about this series is that we can play with different regions. We still haven't been to a lot of places. You know, we've only been to a few countries um, and a few parts of those countries. Um, there's all sorts of things that we can introduce, things like uh, trophy hunting. There's all sorts of things like, uh, you know, uh, uh, cultures that perhaps worship beasts. There, there's all kinds of things that, that we could possibly go into in the future. And I'm not saying that those are definitely going to show up or not, but those are just ideas that could possibly come up. So, yeah, I'm, I'm not limiting myself uh, in any way. Um, but that's also part of the reason, too, why I don't want to have to come out and say exactly, okay, where are all these monsters coming from, and, and what, what are they doing on this earth, and are they naturally occurring or not naturally occurring? I want to give myself flexibility and freedom down the line, um, and I think, honestly, the majority of the fans are on board with that. Excellent. Well, thank you again so much for being here, Lindsay. Yeah. Uh, so where where can we find you? Where can our listeners find you? I know you're on the interwebs. Yep. Uh, just lindsayshoffer.com is by far the, the best place to go. If you just go to www.lindsayshoffer.com, um, there are links there to my books, obviously. There are links there to all of my social media uh, presences. Um, there's even links to uh, my creative writing classes, in case that's something you're interested in. Um, yeah, so that I've, I've really worked hard to, to make it one, one stop uh, to, to find all, you know, to find everything to do with me, so... Just my website. Great. And have you got the Brass Screw Confederacy coming up? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've got, uh, I'll be going to the Brass Screw Confederacy, a, a steampunk convention up in Port Townsend. 
Um, that's that's going to be uh, kind of the sneak peek, the sneak release of uh, Dangerous Territory, but the official launch uh, is going to be uh, later in June. So, yeah. Excellent. Well, congratulations again on the award. Thank you. And the upcoming novel. It sounds like this is a really exciting time for the readers and for you as a writer. Uh, you have internal issues with the character taking place. You have uh, external depth with the, the peoples that have been encountered and uh, maybe the future is holding uh, a wider breadth as well. Um, you mentioned those other regions, so that's all pretty exciting territory for everyone. Yeah, thank, thank you. Thank you for, for coming on to our podcast again, and we wish you the best of luck. Brett, do you want to sign us off? Indeed. Thank you for joining us again on Intent and Instinct. This is Nick and Brett and Lindsay signing off.